This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. One and a half around. Now below one couple and forward six. Look around to the right when you're balanced. Look around to your right and you're balanced once again. Swing your partner. Hey there, I'm Mary Wesley, and this is From the Mic, a podcast about North American social dance calling. Nicely done. Through conversations with callers across the continent, we'll explore the world of square, contra, and community dance callers. Why do they do it? How did they learn? What's their role on stage and off in shaping our dance communities? What can they tell us about the corner of the dance world that they know and love the best? Each episode, we'll talk to a different caller, but they all have something in common. A spark. A desire to lead, to share joy, to invite movement, to stand in that special place between the band and a room full of dancers, or people who don't yet know that they're dancers. And from the mic, say, find a partner. Let's dance. Hi, from the mic listeners. It's me, Mary, back with another caller conversation for you. This time we're headed overseas to the UK to chat with Louise Siddons. Louise was born in the UK, but moved to the United States as a child, where she grew up surrounded by folk music and song. She began folk dancing seriously in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 2008 and started calling soon after. Now back in the UK permanently, she's known on both sides of the Atlantic as a Contra, English country dance, and Kaylee caller. Louise believes that we should invest in the evolution and sustainability of folk traditions and their ongoing relevance to contemporary culture, whether that's through gender-free calling or adapting dances for Zoom. As a caller and dance teacher, she strives to create a fun and welcoming atmosphere with her low-key and light-hearted stage presence. At its best, social folk dance is a living tradition that balances accessibility with challenge and discovery. Louise calls a mixture of modern and historic dances in a variety of formations and enjoys helping dancers discover the musicality of choreography from the familiar to the unexpected. We covered a lot of ground in our conversation, tracing Louise's involvement with communities in Michigan and Oklahoma and across the pond in the UK. I was also excited to learn about her work developing and teaching the practice of positional calling for social dance, which has recently culminated in a new book published through CDSS called Dancing the Whole Dance, Positional Calling for Contra. In the interview, Louise shares what it's been like to step into a leading role in the discussion about positional calling 
and how her personal experiences on and off the dance floor have shaped her approach to dance leadership. Here's Louise. Hello, Louise. Welcome to From the Mic. Hello, Mary. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. I'm so glad to see you. And where are you uh, speaking to us from today? So I am speaking to you from my sitting room, uh, which is in Winchester, uh, which is in Hampshire in the UK. Beautiful. And, And what brings you, what brought you there? Well, it's sort of a long story. Uh, I'm from here in the sense that I was born in London uh, and we emigrated when I was about five. Uh, And then I lived all over the States for a very long time. Um, I'm an academic, I'm an art historian by training. And so I came back here in January of 2021 on a Fulbright fellowship and uh, had been coming back every summer for 20 odd years. staying with family, things like that, and have always loved England. Um, In some ways, always missed it. Uh, Although I think that's a bit of a misnomer because I don't remember huge amounts from when I was little. (laughs) But uh, in any case, was here for six months, about three months in, realized I didn't want to leave. So started plotting uh, how to stay. And now I work at the Winchester School of Art. Uh, I'm a professor of visual politics and head of the Department of Art and Media Technology. Wonderful. Wow. I, so I didn't know that you had had family connections in the area as well. That's great. Yeah. And so where in that trajectory did you encounter social dancing? Yeah, so I started social dancing in California, technically. Um, I started doing historic ballroom dance. I went to the Dickens Fair, which is this event in the Cow Palace in San Francisco with friends. I was not enthusiastic about it. I had a certain uh, level of skepticism, I think would be the safe word, about an event where a bunch of people pretended to be in Dickensian London. Um, Did you wear a costume? Have a, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but they have a dance floor and we were sort of hanging around watching the dance floor and my mother had taught me to waltz when I was tiny like a box step waltz so some dancer like they have staff who have to ask the regular patrons to dance and someone asked me to dance and I was like oh yeah I know how to waltz and of course they're doing like rotary waltz they're doing not a box step in any form and I'm determinedly trying to box step at this poor man who's trying to waltz with me um and uh in the unlikely event I actually fell in love with the dancing and um so there was that and then I also um had started doing swing dancing lessons and uh started with a friend who very quickly hated it but I loved it so I kept going um and yeah so I was doing kind of uh really ballroom style social dance at first And then got a job in Michigan at Michigan State and moved to Michigan in 2007 and couldn't really find any ballroom um, to do, especially that wasn't very student oriented, which felt a little uncomfortable as faculty. Um, So a colleague of mine, uh, Julie Levy Weston, uh, is a contradance caller in Lansing, and she also worked at the Michigan State Museum. So she would put out on the public humanities listserv, like contra dance in Lansing, it's free your first time. 
So I think it was the January 2008 dance was my first contra dance ever. Um, and again, just was like, what is this magic? Uh, I need to do more of this. Immediately found the English country dance in Ann Arbor and started going to that. Um, did all the dancing I could find, drove up and down Michigan for the two years that I lived there, dancing everywhere that I could um, multiple times a week. And that's where I started calling as well. Nice. Nice. Can you go into a little more detail about how you started calling? Like what, what got you from the dance floor to the, to the mic? Well, so I went to this contra dance and then just wanted to find every other folk dance type thing I could. And someone said, oh, you must go to Ann Arbor and do try English dancing. Cause there wasn't, there is now English country dancing in Lansing, but there wasn't at the time Ann Arbor was the closest. So I went and I was the only new dancer there uh, and it was uh, run by Ray Bantle. And so he does like a, just kind of a very welcoming sort of informal introduction if new people come. And so there I was uh, very obviously new, slightly nervous. <laughs> um, and he took me under his wing and sort of taught me how to do a setting step and sort of said, you'll figure it out um, from there. Uh, probably introduced the concept of progression. Um, but having been to a contra dance, I was fully prepared for that bit of it. And yeah, then about three months later, he's like, your sense of timing is impeccable and you're a very fast learner. You should be a caller. Uh, so three or four of us ended up doing a series of workshops that uh, I found as a classroom at Michigan State that we could use to practice. And yeah, started calling. So it was English that I started with. And then just before I left Michigan, I was there for two years and then I got a job in Oklahoma. Um, and just before I left, I think literally um, the last dance event that I was at, um, Ed Vincent, who's a contra dance caller, uh, also in Michigan, I think from Ann Arbor, um, he was like, well, if you can call English, you should call contra. Um, I'm not going to let you leave Michigan without calling Contra. So he taught me the dance Midwest Folklore by Oris Johnson. And I just like sat on the floor in his living room um, with a recording and him kind of being like, just call, just call to me. Um, and yeah, so left left Michigan having called one Contra dance to one human being. Got <laughs> <laughs> to start somewhere. <laughs> You have to start somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. And so then I moved to Oklahoma um, and sort of rocked up at their English dance being like, hi, I'm a caller. I want to call. And um, yeah, it was like, well, that's great. You can call English. Um, but actually what we really need is a contra dance caller because one of our callers is moving away. Um, so yeah, had to, didn't have to but sort of embrace the challenge, if you will. The lovely, lovely dancers of Oklahoma City were very patient with me as uh, <laughs> I learned sort of on them to call contra dances as well. And I found it really challenging um, in comparison with English because the music is uh, structured the same basically for every dance, right? And so I was used to the music kind of reminding me how the dance went. I'm not one of those people who will say the music tells you what to do. 
But if you've practiced the dance a whole lot before you stand up there and call it, then when you hear the tune, it does in fact tell you what to do, which with Contra, that wasn't the case. And so at first, because I'm not um, particularly a musician, it was like I was losing track of the A's and the B's. And it was like, yeah, really kind of a different skill to have to learn. I think, in fact, Contra dance made me much more musically aware than English country dance calling ever did. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. I've never thought of that comparison. And like for me, I I came well, I just came into contra dance and mostly stayed there. You know, I call contra and squares, but um, and that's always been what intim- intimidates me about English calling is all you know the variety of of tunes and meters and and things like that. Whereas that contra dancing is very formulaic in that way that you're you're. AABB structure is pretty much it for for the most part and uh but but when I dance English that is what I love that variety and and um I can see doing it doing it enough times that you have that stronger association with the mu- the music and the movement and like that's what I love about chestnuts too you know that's kind of all yeah. we have in contra dance land that kind of echoes that experience of like you hear chorus jig and you're, you're going to be going going down the outside. Like that's where you're going to (laughs) go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Um, I love, I love chestnuts for the same reason. I think um, they're a nice crossover too. Also they're this opportunity to realize that English dancing can be as energetic and lively and sort of the music can be just as transcendent um, as Contra, I think that a lot of people might say that you don't get into the same flow state with English dancing as you do with Contra. And I think it's harder to achieve maybe, but, you know, moving here, it's been fascinating because a lot of dancers here, especially in the English Kaylee scene, they still do a lot of what I think of as kind of chestnutty English dances, um, by which I probably mostly mean first edition Playford. Uh, and I never understood why those dances had any appeal until I saw a bunch of Kaylee dancers do them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, right. This is Money Musk. <laughs> this is Money Musk yeah, for this community. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I could find that same joy suddenly in it. Nice. Nice. So it sounds like you had such a nice thing, which is when when someone, you know, recognizes you and invites you sort of into something I don't I think that's that can be such a um you know just such a sign sign of encouragement and you know in addition to to those those community folks who kind of stepped up and said hey like come in come try this like what what pulled you into it were you already a teacher you know I'm curious about you know I mean I think it's a bunch of different things you know like when I when I went to the I mean, for months, probably, I can't really remember, but for a long time, I would go to to a contra dance and I would bring a book with me and it would be like, I am dancing. And then in the break, I am reading my book because I'm just waiting for the 15 or 20 minutes until we're dancing again. Um, yeah, so, so my social skills are sort of on the extreme introvert side, I think. Um, and it just took me a long time to realize that people thought of themselves as a community. Hmm. Um, which I think also to a certain extent comes from the fact that I just move around a lot. Um, and so 
that sense of community was sort of precarious for me. It was built around kind of shared purpose rather than just all happening to be in the same place kind of communities. Um, dancing gives you that sense of shared purpose, but I think also calling gives you and other people that you've interviewed have said this, right? Like calling gives you the purpose in the room mm -hmm. beyond just like I'm dancing. And, and it, for me, because I grew up in a family of musicians, but wasn't a musician myself, it also gave me like, oh, this is how I have a purpose kind of in the world of music, uh, that dance was not something that I grew up with necessarily. Um, and so it was important to have that way to have conversations with my family that I couldn't have before. Um, that was a sort of upside uh, to it. But I think definitely the fact that I was a teacher already helped. And I had discovered, I went to uh, to grad school to do my PhD because I wanted to be a curator, um, which is also this very kind of introverted way to be an academic, right? Like I want to find my art museum and I want to hide in the back with all this stuff. <laughs> and my interaction with the public will be through exhibitions, not through direct contact kind of um and obviously, I mean, people who work at museums know that there's a lot of public facing stuff that you do, but it is this fundamentally kind of um, hidden away sort of task. And uh, I discovered because I had to teach for my grad fellowship that I enjoyed teaching and that I was good at teaching, which I hadn't expected. Um, and I think the way in which I enjoyed teaching was I mean, I was lucky to have some brilliant, brilliant teachers to watch. And so as I was thinking really for the first time, like, oh my goodness, I need to develop this skill. I was watching what they did and aspiring to kind of do similar things. And um, one of those things is guiding a conversation, getting people to get somewhere themselves instead of just telling them where to go. And, you know, that's such an obvious parallel to doing a walkthrough, right? Like, I don't want to just tell you where to go. I want you to understand why you're going there and how you got there so that I don't have to tell you again nine times. Yeah, <laughs> that makes so much sense. Um, and so it's this distillation of one of the most fun things about teaching for me. I love that. Yeah, and then adding on this sort of 3D, you know, physical, like embodied layer to all of that yeah yeah exactly and uh and something that I mean I this is true for art history too right like I'm so grateful that by whatever fluke of circumstance I ended up being an art historian instead of a literature scholar or something like that because no one takes an art history class who doesn't want to be there you know like you really have to <laughs> seek it out whereas yeah. everyone has to take freshman composition and like and so yeah, my whole teaching career, I've been teaching people who have self-selected to be present. And a contradance is that too, right? Like even the people who are nervous and who are unsure chose to be there. And so you can just go in and be like, I am sort of wholeheartedly trying to make you happy about the decision you made to show up in this place. Um, and that gives me the freedom, I think to just be kind of unabashedly passionate about what we're doing together. And, and that's really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. 
So how did th things develop once you started calling in Oklahoma? Yeah, so uh, pretty straightforwardly, probably. Um, I called a lot. I was really terrible at first and I got better. Um, I think that one of the hardest things for me is not losing my temper. Um, and so it was like a lot of life lessons for me wrapped up in also just learning the technical kind of skills of calling. Um, and so and like again, not like losing your temper when things aren't going as, as you yeah. want them to kind of exactly like in every way right learning. like I remember <laughs> yeah. sort of this absolute like nadir of my calling career was like I was trying to teach something lots of people in the hall were chatting I couldn't hear anything it was a really live hall it was like a nightmare to do sound in um the band was talking the people on the dance floor were talking like there were some confused people and I just said, shut up. <laughs> Which we've all like, thought in our heads a million times. <laughs> yeah, but like, that's not supposed to come out of your mouth over the mic. <laughs> and and to be fair uh, to everyone in the room, they were very nice about it. Uh, a couple of people came up to me afterwards and were like, you know, it would really be better if you didn't say things like that over the mic. And I was like, Yes, yes, it would. We all agree on this point. Um, and yeah, I just feel I feel really lucky that at that point I had learned this lesson about community and um, I had a huge amount of respect for them for trusting. Um, you know, I was one of a bunch of new callers that were all doing workshops and learning together. Um, and that the dancers trusted us and they wanted to help us learn. And so they were really generous about it, but yeah, things, things like that. And um, so I think there's a lot of kind of learning to be a little bit calm and Zen. Um, and I had a moment just last autumn, you know, I was, uh, I can't even remember what the circumstances were, but it was just there. I was at a dance it was on the level of like the hall was full of chairs and tables and the band wasn't there. And um, like, obviously nothing was ready for this dance to happen in about 20 minutes. And I was just like, you know, I could be really kind of upset about this or I could just be like, eh, at some point people will show up. We'll move some chairs. We'll have a dance. It's fine. And I was like, Oh, Louise, look, you have learned a thing. <laughs> beautiful <laughs> so I think it's you know it's a journey um but I definitely I think it's part of being a new new at something right it's like you're anxious and your anxiety is sort of on behalf of the people who you know you might fail mm -hmm. yes and the lesson is like no one cares you know Joseph Pimentel does this hilarious thing where he makes a mistake and he plucks it out of the air literally physically and then throws it away and I, I envy him every time now. And I'm just like, what a brilliant thing. Because like, he also is like, I am too much of a perfectionist and I need to move past that. And I'm like, yes, that, yes, um, resonates with me hugely. So yeah, I, I feel like um, the, the master moment is like, I don't even need to pluck it out of the air anymore. It left of its own accord. Just dissolved. It knew I didn't want yes. it to be here. <laughs> yeah. 
I feel like that's something we don't talk about a lot as, you know, because it is kind of the role. It's both kind of just the like social role of, of the leader or the caller is that, that you're projecting, you know, confidence and, you know, having the situation in hand while all kinds of things might be going on, you know, under, (laughs) under the cover of that, which like you said, is, you know, happens in many different life, life situations, but it is really cool to think of that as, you know, one of the things, the the arcs of learning to be a caller too, is how how to integrate all of that. And then in addition to just the skills of like, what are the moves and what is the timing? Exactly. You know, it's, it's, uh, how are you, how are you holding this room full of people? Um, which really in, entails like you being really profoundly affected by everything that is, <laughs> that is around you. Cause you're really trying to hold it like right as I'm saying this I'm like holding my arms out because it because I feel I experience it too as like such a visceral thing like I feel a slight physical connection to like everybody in the room or yeah or somebody like putting a fan in the window because it got hot like all this stuff that's happening at the same time is you're you're getting this sort of feedback and it's a lot to manage while then trying to like sort of say words (laughs) words <laughs> over the microphone. Yeah. And I think it's a funny thing too, because it's that sense of like responsibility and caretaking. And so for me in that moment, it was like, I I am trying to help people who need my help. And that like, you know, it's this frustration that comes of like an excess of, I don't know what, like well-meaningness that just goes horribly awry somehow. But yeah, I mean, I think... um it was also maybe the the lesson of we all like it's a team i say all the time now it's a team sport you know like we are all there teaching each other and learning together and in fact like i need to learn like if people are being really chatty it's cuz they need to chat in that moment right it's and- also social dance and they're socializing yeah, exactly which i think you know, based on my, like, I took a book and didn't socialize, like what it was actually a thing I had to consciously remind myself of early on is like, yeah, people are here to talk to each other. Um, and I remember, you know, the Tulsa contra dance, when I first started dancing there, it was like, they would dance for five minutes and break for 10 and dance for five. And I was like, what is this phenomenon? But you know, it was a group of people who just really enjoyed each other's company. And they were like, we're, we're choosing to spend three hours of our time together. Here's how we want to spend it. Um, and yeah, it, it was what it was. It was really, um, not intentional, but it had formed out of the needs of the people there. Yeah. Um, you know, having, having kind of lived in a couple different places and been, been in a, you know, some different communities, what have you noticed about, about the different places you've been? Are there kind of regional styles or Uh, yeah it's interesting I mean I think it's not so much region as size maybe of community that I mean uh, I'm not sure I can count accurately but you know Michigan was networked enough that there were say a dozen contra dance callers who were Michiganders 
but also people came through all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had a lot of variety of callers and that sort of uh, reseeded the community in various ways. It brought in new dances that then got collected by local callers. It brought in bands all the time. Um, so you heard different styles of music. Whereas in Oklahoma, you know, we had four cities ultimately by the time I moved away that had dances in them. Um, but we also only had about four callers and we only had about four bands. And so people heard the same things all the time. Um, so when I moved to Oklahoma, my perspective as a relatively new contra dancer, but one who'd already been to Pinewoods and kind of had been traveling all over the country dancing, um, because anytime I went somewhere for work, which I did a lot of, I would dance, right? So I had this kind of cosmopolitan understanding of what contra dancing was and went into a community where people didn't really travel as much and the callers had been calling there for decades. And so it was uh, kind of a snapshot in time in a way uh, of what contra dancing was in like the eighties. Um, even though it was 2009 by the time I moved there. And that's not entirely true. Like obviously people traveled and they collected dances and things, but there was still um, kind of a, a, a diversity of choreography that I think had disappeared certainly from the coasts um, and was disappearing in Michigan. You know, I, when I started dancing in Michigan, there were two square dances in every set at every contra dance. Um, I mean, two in a row as one does. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and by the time I was calling contra well enough to be traveling, I was being told do not call squares. Um, and even in Michigan, getting that, uh, that feedback. So that narrowing, I think, um, really impacted my experience of, uh, of how dancing was changing more than maybe regions did. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated the fact that Oklahoma dancers were willing to try things that if I was on a coast, I would, I would have gotten sort of booed for calling, um, and so, I mean, it sounds like you got involved in lots of different facets of of dancing in Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, I so I was calling and then um, the woman who was running the caller workshops left. So I kind of took that over um, at some point, joined the board that ran like it was a statewide organization is a statewide organization that runs the dances in Oklahoma. So I joined that board um, and because I was teaching at Oklahoma State, the students there, um, we sort of had this moment where we realized there were multiple Stillwater people driving to Oklahoma City for the contra dance. And one of the students said, why don't we start a dance here? And I said, if you find the dancers, I'm happy to call. It was early enough that I was like, I need the practice. Um, so yeah, became the, stu- the advisor for the student club, um, called for free. Uh, for years and years and years until we got going. Um, and they did, they they had a really healthy dance and it was that dance that first went gender-free in Oklahoma. Um, and yeah, they were a great group actually. And then we started uh, a little Irish set group because I was sick of coming to the UK for two months, dancing Irish sets and then going back to Oklahoma where there were none. 
Yeah. Um, so I think to a certain extent, it was like, uh, yeah, it's the kind of dance community where you could come into it and say, here's what I would like to do. Will you all do it with me? So Irish sets was like a natural addition in a way, even though um, it wasn't part of the organization officially. We just kind of, yeah, it, there was a lot of freedom to do whatever we wanted. Nice. Yeah. I think a lot of callers step into organizer roles in different ways. Uh, like in that example, it sounds like you're, you know, you're sort of already connected with your school community and, and you know, an obvious person for students to kind of approach. But did that come naturally? And did you feel excited to sort of be part of shaping other opportunities for dance to happen? Yeah, I think, um, do I want to say it's part of a natural kind of progression of sort of leadership? Uh, it might not be. That's a good but question. Me, I've never thought like, about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think my, my sort of model of being in the world is that you join a thing and then you take on some responsibility. And then as it grows, you take on more, or as you grow, you take on more responsibilities. So Right. There's some like uh, reciprocity there for, for giving yeah, back. Yeah, there's sort of a, right, exactly. There's a kind of um, responsibility to, to the group that is making this thing that you do possible, you know, especially folk dance. It's so entirely reliant upon people being willing to do it, you know, if not for free, basically for free. Yeah. Um, it is a thing that we do for fun. And I love the aspect of it that is kind of, for lack of a better word, anti-capitalist, right? It's just like, yeah, you know what? Like, this is a fun thing that we can do with very little infrastructure. Yeah. And we can do it almost anywhere. I mean, my God, in COVID, we learned that we could do it literally anywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> and nowhere. Um, but yeah, it's it's just this incredibly malleable Thing. And so in some ways, it's quite exciting to be like, I mean, for me to come home one summer and think what I really would like is an Irish set in my living room next week. And for that to actually happen is magical. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, Oklahoma was a difficult place for me to live in, I think is the is the gentle way to put it. And I relied on the dance community for um, a lot of, of support and care and it didn't universally give it, you know, like, I mean, Oklahoma's dance community reflects Oklahoma, um, as a social climate more generally, but, but key people really did. And so I think that, that, that really made me invested in making this community sustainable, right? Like in contributing to it because, I mean, I think across the country, across the world, social folk dance is a space for people who don't necessarily have easy, easy social places mm -hmm. in the rest of their lives. So yeah, I, I enjoy organizing on like many levels, but I think part of it is about creating those spaces for people who don't have spaces or who don't have the most nurturing kinds of spaces or even just sort of well-rounded spaces mm -hmm. um, and to do that outside of a system where everything is sort of commercialized and um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I like reminding people we can make our own fun. That's such a strong element of of our communities is that there's the many ways that um, that people can pitch in and, and find a role or be be involved in in some way like it's sort of very open source in that in that way and it sounds like yeah. you notice that as you travel around and and are do, is it similar in the UK and and what what's what that's yeah, a dance you know, landscape I'm less familiar with, but and I feel like it was a, it's 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 like every community. The more you get to know it, the less you realize you know, right? Yeah. Um, I love the dance community in the UK because it is incredibly diverse. I mean, yeah, I can I can go from a weekend doing super complex 18th century dances to a Kaylee where it's like drunk people being slightly chaotic um <laughs> and everything in between and those were both English examples which is a bad example because I can also like go do Balfolk and I can go do Contra and um I can go to a club dance where I would do a little bit of all those things in one evening and um so there's there's a lot of dancing to be done but there's also a huge cultural divide here between people who are very old fashioned about their expectations. And like, obviously gender is a part of that at the moment because that's the discursive moment that we're in. But um, there are other things like, you know, some of them are really comforting. You know that, I mean, I know when I walk into a club to call their dance, I'm going to get offered a cup of tea when I arrive, right? <laughs> like, um, that doesn't happen at contra dances yeah, in this country, only so club lovely. dances. And they're going to ask you what you want at the break, tea or coffee, and they're going to bring you whatever you asked for with two biscuits. And like, yeah, it's like there are such kind of um, old, old fashioned, that's the word I used before, and I'm going to stick with it, like, modes of being in the world. And uh, as someone who is unrepentantly, I think, nostalgic for a, a time and place that never existed, mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it reminds me of my grandmother and it reminds me of uh, the ways in which foodways are about community building. You know, it's just it's little things. And um at the same time, like those are the dances. I mean, those are the dances that made me invent positional calling. Um, 
because they are the dances where you would never in a million years be allowed to use something other than men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, their dances, like I have been told off for asking someone to dance because their spouse is right there. And what was I thinking? Um, and, different kind of old fashioned. Yeah. Like there's just a whole bunch of like conventions that I think, but then the flip side is like, you know, you have queer Kaylee, you have queer Contra, you have all of those things happening here as well. And I think, I mean, obviously in the States, there's uh debate around what we want our dance community to look like, what constitutes being welcoming and inclusive, but here it does, it does feel different. It, um, almost every dance because as, uh, uh, as I accidentally became sort of the representative of positional calling, particularly in this country, um, people recognize me. Like the dance community in the UK is tiny. Um, So having done a few festivals, like people know who I am. So they see me on a dance floor and it's, I don't think I've been to a dance that wasn't labeled as gender free and not had someone say something about how they didn't think that this whole gender free thing was necessary. You know, the level of unsolicited feedback I get about gendered and non-gendered calling um, is massive. And because all of that happened, I think largely because of the pandemic um, and we were all stuck having conversations instead of dancing. (laughs) Um, I don't know, I haven't danced in the US since the pandemic. and and so I have no idea if the same thing would happen if on a dance floor I would get accosted by someone every time saying, I just need you to know that I think larks and ravens are ridiculous. And I'm like, it's larks and robins now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but equally, you know, like I was uh, at our local contra dance last Wednesday and um, unexpectedly because the caller who was supposed to do it had an injury, um, I was splitting it with one of the other local callers uh, with about two days notice. So we didn't really talk. We just talked. We were like, you do some, I'll do some. Perfect. Great. That's our plan. Right. Uh, and I show up and he's calling entirely positionally. And he's never done that before. And I didn't ask him to. Uh, and people in the room heckled him, tried to get him to stop. And he was like, no, I'm trying this thing and I'm going to stick with this thing. And I don't know how old he is, but he's definitely over 70. Wow. And I'm just like, you're awesome. Like amazing. Yeah. And I remember walking into uh, my old club in London and they didn't know I was coming. I didn't know I was going until that afternoon. And again, this guy who's been calling for longer than I've been alive probably is like, calling positionally. He's like, I just want to try it. And so it comes up in these weird ways where you're like the people you least expect mm-hmm. are the people who are most excited about this like new skill that they might develop. Even if they don't stick with it, like exploring it and thinking about how it might help them. And I hope that that's partly because I keep framing it as like thinking positionally will help you help dancers get better. Yeah. Like it has teaching benefits beyond the gender bit um but for me as a dancer it just utterly changes the way that I experience the dance um 
And it took me most of my life to realize how much the language we use around gender matters to me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of me is like, you know what, if, if someone who's 18 can have the opportunity to realize that at 18 instead of 38, more power to them. Like, mm-hmm. why not do that for the world? Um, but that also makes it more amazing that people who don't have a personal investment are still kind of that they get it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it goes back to the, this sort of open source idea of, of, you know, or it's like the opposite of, of top down in a lot of ways, the way that our dance communities and and traditions funk. I mean, it's sort of the, the classic definition of like a traditional art form that is that, um, you know, and it's funny how that's often confused with like an idea of, of, of being staying a static thing, you know, like I think people often confuse traditional with like the way it has always been when in fact traditional is really like, you know, evolves in response to a current circumstance and you know led by the people who are who are doing it and you know and who need it to serve different roles in in their lives and so you know and not not everybody experiences that it that way and wants it to be that way but it's so cool to 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 recognize when somebody is willing to say oh it it has been this way for me and what's this new part of it that I, that I haven't gotten to experience yet. Yeah. So cool. I mean, as I said before, I'm a historian, right? So I think in terms of kind of how, how change happens through lots of tiny little actions kind of coming together to create change that respond. Like I really believe in the idea of a zeitgeist in a way that's probably horribly, like I should not say that as a professional historian, but (laughs) But I think it's a really useful concept to to understand sort of, you know, why did multiple people, you know, I said before it was an accident that I became sort of one of the leading voices of positional calling. Um, I think that was almost entirely because Brooke Friendly asked me to write the Contra Dancing the Whole Dance book, right? Like if I hadn't written the book, I'd been doing some workshops, I'd been talking about it. But the book and the CDSS logo and the kind of publicity that that gets um, gives a kind of authority to me that I don't necessarily, not that I don't deserve, but like I, what I'm trying to say is I think it's not a coincidence that like Andrea Nettleton and Beth Malaro and myself and um, to a certain extent Brooke, although really not in a contra context, um, but all of these people were starting to think about sort of what does positional thinking have to contribute to a conversation around how, not just how we describe roles on a dance floor, but how we think about what we're doing on multiple levels. You know, um, I mean, Andrea and I have had multiple conversations that are just about positional calling as a way to get people to dance better. Um, which is why I'm so adamant about that aspect of it, because I'm like, I know from teaching new dancers that their dancing is more fluid faster if they're given these concepts uh, that you don't get when people are relying 
on certainly gendered role terms. Mm-hmm. Maybe can let's just I just want to back up a little bit and and introduce um, yeah. positional <laughs> calling a little bit. Just I mean it, I love I love how that how that flowed, but I, I also want to make sure that if anyone is kind of new to some of these concepts, they're they're able to follow along. Um, so could I ask you to to do that and kind of frame for us how you started putting together and kind of naming uh, this this set of concepts and and tools that is now is positional calling. I've also heard global positional calling. You know what? Yeah. What yeah. Is, what so is it? I wish I knew where positional calling came from because I kind of just started using it because everyone else was using it. Um, And it's not entirely accurate. I had someone in a workshop who I really should go back and see who it was so I can give her credit for it. Um, But she liked relational uh, as a term for it, which makes so much more sense, right? Like if I could go back in time and start over, I would call it relational calling because first of all, being very explicit about the fact that in a swing, one of you always ends on one side and one of you always ends on the other. Right. And then like, okay, what information do we have? I am devoted to the ballroom hold because if you swing with a ballroom hold, then you have a hand that you can use both to point in the direction you want to face and to let go so that you're on the correct side. Mm -hmm. It's a weird rule, right? Um, And it was fascinating because Chris Page, when he was talking to you, attributed this rule. He said it emerges in this one dance from 1942. And I'm like, what, really? Can we pin the the rule-based swing to one dance in one moment? That is fascinating to me. I'm not convinced. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe what he was saying is like, that has always been the swing rule, like in a square dance. Right. But to realize that you can use it as a way to progress a contra dance was quite new in that moment. Um, you know, because if you think about a lot of chestnuts, it's like you, you lead back up and cast down and that's your progression. Yeah. Um, in any case that is, uh, caller nerdiness in the extreme, but, (laughs) uh, (laughs) or maybe historian nerdiness, I don't know. Uh, but this, like, it's the only, it's the only figure in all of social folk dance, as far as I know, that has this random rule attached to it about where you end it. Mm -hmm. So unpacking that for new dancers. And just being like, and you know, like then when you're standing out at the end, what do you do? You swing and you face in. And that is so much more comprehensible than remember to cross over like, oh God, another arbitrary rule I have to remember. No, you don't. Right. Um, But similarly, like if it's going to be a chain across by the right, it's going to be the person whose right shoulder is on the outside. This kind of information is not the kind of thing I would say in a walkthrough. Mm -hmm. Um. But in a workshop about dancing positionally, it's the kind of thing that I would say, like, if it's a right shoulder, hey, it's going to be the person with their right shoulder on the outside. If it is an alamand right, it's going to be that person. Like, there there are patterns here. Like, your outside hand is the functional hand. Um, And if you teach dancers those kinds of rules, then they start to look for them and feel them and you know, for me now, if someone says chain, I don't think, oh, that's my right hand. Right. You know, I just put out the hand. Yeah. And as someone who's really bad with lefts and rights, that was like a key learning moment for me. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is it? And similarly, like 
in the same way that we treat roles as these kind of discrete pieces of information, we treat figures in a walkthrough as discrete bits of information. So it'll like if you're doing the walkthrough, you'll have a caller say chain across and everyone chains. Now do a, hey, right shoulder start, whatever. And then people, so they stop and they start. And for me, again, it was sort of, how do I teach this in a way that emphasizes the transition between figures rather than emphasizing the figures? Um, and so all of that obviously gets elaborated into a whole bunch of things about how you do your programming and how you write your walkthroughs and is there an introductory workshop and what do you teach in it? Um, but yeah, as I said earlier, I think again, um, to me, what was the key insight was that it was making dancers dance better mm-hmm. and learn more quickly. And so what had started out as a strategy to call without reference to gender became a strategy about teaching more effectively. And at that point, I was interested enough that I was running workshops and um And then Brooke asked me to write the book and it's kind of, it's just become something that's continually of interest to me and something that is interesting because it's changing all the time. Yeah. Keep saying to people when I run workshops, like if I wrote the book again, it would say a lot of things differently. Um, And, and so the book for me is like this moment in time of like, this is what positional calling looked like when I wrote it a year ago. Yeah. There so, might have to be some, some further, yeah. further additions, which is uh, always true, but, but it's so that's the whole process, right? Like, yes. it's like, I'm going to put this idea out in the world and then you all are going to make it better. Yeah. Um, and, and that does, uh, happen, I think organically, mm-hmm. um, by people discovering what works and what doesn't. You've, you've alluded to it kind of already, but what do you see in a dance evening? Like when you are able to call, call the whole thing without reference to any roles or so when you're calling a completely positionally, like what, what do you, what do you see your experience, you know, in, in the, the, that evening of dance kind of as a whole? I mean, I think it depends who I'm calling to. Yeah. I mean, I I guess what in my head I'm thinking, do I see anything different than I saw five, six, seven years ago? Um, I mean, I see differences in my own programs. I've been very intentional about trying to call um, three facing three dances and dances that are not binary. It definitely took me down a whole weird rabbit hole of dances that aren't just, uh, two people dancing with two other people and then progressing um, and realizing the long history of that, you know, like the very first edition of Playford had a three facing three dance. Mm-hmm. So in 1651, we weren't coupled necessarily. And consistently, like it's always a minority of dances, um, but they have always been there in every tradition. Um And to me, that says there has been a continual community need for dances that go beyond the binary structure um, of a duple minor set. So for uh, for me as a historian, but also as a caller, that's interesting. And, um, you know, for part of the pandemic, I lived with two other people. And so we were Zoom dancing and trying to adapt things for three 
in a way that made me think differently about choreography and was sort of exciting. Like, I think that uh, there is a danger in any group activity to, for, for things to narrow. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it's one of the ironies of the controversy over positional calling um, people can't see my scare quotes, but I think that at this point, <laughs> the word controversy deserves scare quotes when it comes to gender free anything in Contra. Um, but, uh, but everyone says, oh, but you have to narrow down your, your repertoire because not everything can be called positionally. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially if the room is on your side absolutely anything can be called positionally that's a contradance. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think the people saying this are people who are responsible for narrowing down the repertoire so significantly, massively. In the 15 years I've been dancing, it has gone from this incredibly rich field to like every dance has a partner swing and a neighbor swing. Yeah. Um. So what are you talking about narrowing down the repertoire? Uh, but red herrings aside, I think um, certainly it it expanded my repertoire to be trying to dance with two people. Um, and then to think about, well, how has this happened historically? And I think that's the other thing that's sort of important to me is that people frequently uh, turn to history as an excuse for gendering dance uh, terminology. And I love history. I think history is fascinating. Um, but I think that if you're going to talk about history, you have to talk about the whole history. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've seen that again and again, and especially in the past few years. Right. But, um, whether it's Phil Jameson talking about the African-American roots of Contra or, um, squares or, um, you know, people talking about uh, trans identities in 18th century British theater. Uh, Like there are all kinds of ways in which history is not straight Mm -hmm. uh, and history is not straightforward in the way that people who rely on it is uh, an excuse for being hidebound in their thinking, try to make it. So, yeah, I think um, if anything, we should turn to history to make exactly the arguments that we're trying to make. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you said you kind of started engaging in this, this exploration to really address something that you were experiencing going to dances yourself. And and so you were kind of like, okay, like this is, this is, I was hesitate to use the word like problem to solve, but like, this is the, this is the challenge. This is a set of circumstances that you, you wish could be different. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's just like, it's every, there are so many layers to it. Right. So, um, so in Lansing, uh, I don't know how to tell this story. I've never told this story before, which is kind of funny now that I think about it, but there we were, uh, a group of us went to a contra dance and there was, uh, a woman there who came by herself. Um, I would say sort of obviously enough, maybe queer that I was willing to take that risk of finding out um but yeah so there we were and she was new to contra dancing and so I asked her to dance I was 
uh, confident enough at that point that I was like, I can help new dancers like succeed at this and it's something that I enjoy. And also, you know, she was gorgeous and whatever. Um, so, so there we are. Um, and it, but it was like, oh, I'll, I'll be the gent because you're new. And like, what is that about? Oh yeah. That's, there's a lot there to unpack. There is so much there and yet people do it all the time. And it's like, one of these roles is not harder than the other. Mm -hmm. uh, And even if it, I don't know. I mean, even if it were is beside the point, because in fact, they are symmetrically difficult. They are equally um, sort of complicated and, or equally not complicated. Uh, But, but so like the internalization of that hierarchy, Mm -hmm. when it has nothing to do with the choreography of the dance, I think was, uh, was something that I didn't recognize until it was taken away. Yeah. Uh, And then we, so we went gender free uh, at the Stillwater Contra. That was my student group in Oklahoma. And they didn't like, I think it was, I'm sure it was still Larks and Ravens in 2017 is when they switched. Um, and so they were like, we're going to come up with our own terms. Uh, and I said, that's fine. Um, but we have to come up with something. They basically, they came to me and said, what are the rules for new terms? And I said, the rules are one syllable, two syllables. Um, because then I can sub them in without thinking about it. So can they I, can I ask what was the student group uh, was it a queer student group or just a, a uh, it was just the the student contra group student yeah. contra but yeah. yeah that was something um, they were they wanted for the structure yeah, of that it was group. like I think I don't want to put words in their mouth but I think basically it was like they were almost entirely women we had one guy uh on the committee um at the time and and they wanted to dance with each other and they felt obligated to line up in hetero pairs if that was possible at the dances and i think even though there were some dancers who would switch roles um like from oklahoma city who would come to our dance they weren't sort of clear necessarily on when and whether that was okay and kind of yeah, making sweeping generalizations, I would say that my students at Oklahoma State really liked having permission to do things. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so 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 I was like, okay, you can vote on new terms because they wanted to make sure that it was kind of democratic how they chose these new ones. Um, so we did a dance where the first half I called Jensen Ladies, and then in the break they had the vote. They had like a giant poster with all the options. Um, and then the second half I would call with whatever we chose. So they chose shoots and ladders. That's really fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny because it doesn't translate. Like in the UK, the same game is called snakes and ladders oh, and it's yeah. snakes that you slide down. So I have to explain it all the time now oh, in a way. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we were shoots and ladders. We switch over and it was, um, it was amazing to me. Like they had all the same room full of people. Right. And they had all been dancing one way before. And then the, 
break happened, we voted, shoots and ladders, and almost the first dance, probably the first dance, people were turning to each other and going, which role do you want to dance? And they were dancing with each other, like in completely heterogeneous kind mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. partnerships. Like it was just like, oh, I would like dance with you. Let's line up. And now I'm going to ask you. And I'm like, this, this is making it so obvious that all the people who are like, oh, gents and ladies, it's just a role term. You can dance wherever you like. Like we really only meant it as a community in terms of okay, if you're at a dance weekend and you're kind of hotshot, you can do cool switching stuff and you can do chaos. But at a regular dance, we mean, well, if you're going to dance with someone of the same gender, it's fine, mm. right? Like mm -hmm. it wasn't really an enthusiastic, like you can learn both roles. And indeed, if you want to be really good, you probably should learn both roles. Um. That's interesting to think of that, of that like role switching as as a sign of aptitude or, or like, you know, skill, skill as a dancer rather than just doing oh, like a way that you can dance, that you can be doing the dance. And I think, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, think I hope that that's that's chiming. I think it's just different. There's yeah. a, across the board in different places and stuff, but. Is exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there are places where certainly, but I, it's tricky because for me, when, when I dance outside my local community, I'm almost always at an event that is experienced dancers. Like I'm hardly ever as a dancer in a room where there are a lot of new dancers. And I'm really hardly, hardly ever now that I'm here in a room where that's true. And also they're calling gender free. Mm -hmm. Um, I did called London Barn Dance about a year ago, um, which is the big contra dance in London nice. and um, frequently has like huge groups of new people turn up at some random point in the evening. So I had a group show up, it was maybe like 12 people, uh, about two dances before the break. And they watched a dance and they danced a dance and it was a little bit terrible. Um, and so I offered in the break to do like an intro workshop for them. And I didn't fully think through the fact that I did, because I'd been calling positionally all night. I did a positional intro, but only the new people heard it. And I think most people in the room didn't realize I was calling positionally because people fill in the words they expect to hear. Mm -hmm. And so having very carefully taught them kind of how to swing and where to end the swing, there was one couple that kept getting switched by all their neighbors. Like, oh no, you're in the wrong place. And it because was- Because they were assuming obviously. something. Because they were in the right their... place. Yeah, yeah. And they kept being really confused. It's like, no, but last time I wasn't over here. Why are you putting me? So it was, um, I mean, it wasn't disastrous. It was just like a nice reminder to me that it helps to be explicit about what you're doing. Right. Everyone in the room is on the same page. Um, but this is what I mean about kind of, uh, you know, that, that dance I would say is, I would say is still on the conservative side. Um, and it's almost entirely gendered. Whereas I can call in spaces where you, you absolutely cannot look at the floor and tell who's dancing what role. Right. right. Um, which is another huge thing for me, thinking positionally and teaching people to dance positionally. 
is like, if you get screwed up, then you can just seamlessly dance the other role. Mm-hmm. Because if you hear chain across and you know, you're where that person who's chaining should be, even if it shouldn't be you, you can just do it and figure it out later. Right. And this you idea know. The swing will fix you, Mm -hmm. but accommodate in the meantime, which is a complicated skill to learn. But I think giving people the language and the concepts and a frame for how the dance geometry works is so incredibly useful. Um, I was married briefly, um, and I was at a dance with her and some random stranger guy came up and didn't say, can I dance with one of you? But said, like, I think I was in the gents role, right? Um, and he came over and he was like, I'm going to be you. And I was like, what? <laughs> no, no, you are not. Nope. And he's like, but you're two girls dancing together. And I was like, yes, yes, we are. And, and you what are is happening from the 19th century. Like, except I don't want to blame history for this because Jane Austen's favorite partner was a woman. <laughs> so like... Don't even, you know, like just get away. But um, yeah, I think on every level, there's this kind of like, why do we bring that baggage onto the dance floor? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why are we bringing in kind of patriarchal hierarchy to a dance that doesn't have one? Why are we um, making assumptions about things that are irrelevant to the dance? You know, like there's just ways in which as we learn and grow as a society, we can also hopefully do that on the dance floor. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I think it's so, so wonderful to, you know, to see the interplay between our dance spaces where we in many different ways have um, sort of, even though there's a lot of challenges to encounter and it's not that it's going to be like a smooth linear thing, but there, there is at least this mechanism of, um, you know, community involvement and, you know, anyone from wherever they stand in that community is a valid person to raise a point or, or ask for, for a change or or try to make a change. And then to sort of see how maybe that's happening because of, you know, larger societal things happening. And then, you know, I, I like to hope that, that that flow is going, is flowing outward as well. You know, that there, there's a, a give and take, you know, <laughs> no pun intended from our dance spaces and kind of our larger, larger social spaces. And that it's a place for, um, you know, because so many people do feel so in touch with themselves and in, in a really powerful way on the dance floor 
and then like that's a that's a good starting point to sort of try to encounter and learn from where someone else what someone else is bringing into the space I don't know I feel like that that was a confusing (laughs) no but I I think you're really you're really right that um that people take take away from the dance lessons that they do apply to real life I mean that's in some ways kind of the privilege of I was going to say the privilege of uh, having a marginalized identity position is that you get to see people. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's also one of the sources of the most frustration, but, but I mean, very legitimately, I think it is, uh, it has been a privilege for me when people feel safe being vulnerable. Um. Because a lot of people don't don't have people that they can talk to mm-hmm. about things, right? And so, at least in my experience, if I've been dancing with someone for 10 years or more, um, like I am someone, they're like, oh, I have all these questions and all this frustration about this thing that's happening, and you seem to be stuck in the middle of it and a proponent of it even – And so I'm going to ask you all these questions and it can feel quite hostile. I think at times, like people don't realize what they're asking, but if I'm in a space where I feel like this is a conversation I'm equipped to have in this moment, then I do try to have it as sort of openly and genuinely as possible because I've had people come back to me and say, um, you know, my niece is trans and I never understood that. And it's like, if dancing, if gender-free dancing helped you understand that, that's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And if anything I said helped that process happen, like that really does, that does, I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to minimize the level of alienation that people feel um in in dance communities but every now and then you have that kind of interaction and you're like oh yeah we all kind of have a role to play in this Mm -hmm. um yeah what's kind of on the horizon for you right now I mean you know of course acknowledging that we're all sort of still in in the process of of like Re- finding our bearings again after after three years of pandemic and, and figuring out what <laughs> what's going on <laughs> um yeah. and and also kind of integrating the things that we learned over that time it's like it sounds like you learned a lot even from just staying connected over zoom and, and the different ways that we still you know maintained or, and participated with our dance communities um also, I wanted to make sure to to highlight what you already mentioned, which is that you have just published a book on positional <laughs> calling um, with in partnership with CDSS. It will definitely include a link in the show notes so people can check that out. Um, but, you know, there that's a whole bunch of factors that may or may not be at play for you. But in general, what are what yeah. what uh, do you kind of look forward to, and what are you moving towards uh, in your caller life these days? 
It's a really good question. I um I am I am super grateful that we did start dancing very soon um here in the UK. I think it's intensely problematic. Uh it was sort of physically shocking to me how when the government regulations went away, everyone immediately stopped masking. You know, I was commuting into London and I'm like I am not taking my mask off on this train because it was illegal to have it off yesterday. And just because it's legal today doesn't mean like biology has changed. <laughs> um, so that was that was eye opening, I think, in terms of sort of cultural experience. But it did mean that I've had a lot of calling opportunities since I moved here and I'm um, I've leaned into them because I think everywhere I've lived, the dance community has been my community. And I do think of that as kind of my primary social network. So it's been nice that we've been able to do that so much. Um, and I was also really lucky. Uh, some of the workshops that I did online in the pandemic meant that people here knew who I was more than they had before. And so I got invited to call at festivals and things uh, straight away which was very, very, um, I think, supportive and um, sort of incredible for me. Uh, and and what that meant in terms of where I see myself going as a caller is that I could have conversations with people who are organizing events about sort of what I do and why I think it matters. And um, so... Uh, you know, this spring at the Chippenham Folk Festival, I'm doing workshops on positional calling, but I could say to the organizer, you know, I think it's really only half of it is the calling. The other half is this idea of positional dancing. And um, what I really want to do is a positional dancing workshop. And so he said, yeah, okay, um, we'll put that in too. So I'm, I'm looking, for, that'll be the first time I've done a positional dancing workshop in person. And I think that that's quite interesting. Um, I'm very much looking forward to that and kind of making that into something that we think about um, in part because what I've realized running caller workshops is that these aren't, um, they aren't things that come naturally They're because they're not the way we were taught. Um, we don't, it, you have to retrain yourself to think that way and to teach that way. And so having a workshop where you can do it as a dancer then allows you to transfer that sort of physical knowledge into when you're thinking about it. Um, I do love running workshops. I like my firm belief uh, is that I enjoy teaching because I learned so much from it. Um, and yeah, so I'm looking forward to that in a variety of ways. I'm going out to California to do uh, hay days. Nice. So I'm looking forward to doing a bunch of English calling. Um, in addition to Contra. So yeah, I like that I get to do a mix. I'm really sort of happy about that. And I'm, I'm not good at doing nothing. So I think dance is a really important way for me to do something very different from my day job. Um, but still be working. Yeah, <laughs> still be <laughs> occupied, yeah. channeling your energy. Yeah. It sounds like there's no no shortage of of uh, projects on your plate. It's really exciting. Um, let's see. I, I usually have three questions that I close with, but before I do, is there anything that we 
haven't covered or anything that I just haven't asked you about? The thing about positional calling, I always get asked in workshops, why do you think positional calling is the answer? And I try to say every time and usually repeatedly, I do believe in the power of repetition, um, that I don't think it's the answer. I I think that it is an incredibly useful and interesting and fun strategy for teaching and calling. But that idea of like, we find the ultimate solution and then we're done is so antithetical to the idea of a living tradition. And um, Pete Seeger has this gorgeous line that I never remember about how folk is a process, not a thing. Mm -hmm. And um, absolutely, like this is where we're at now, but I sort of love that the positional calling book is already out of date in my head. I still think there's a huge amount of value in there, but part of its value, most of its value is about how it starts a conversation mm-hmm. that I hope will then have more people than just me coming up with answers. Yeah. Um, I and think the that's other happening that from, a, from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is too. I mean, I love it. I have this huge file of notes of like things people in my workshops did better than I thought of doing. But, um, but the other thing I always get asked is about squares. And can you call squares positionally? And I always, again, say that I am not enough of a square dance caller to answer that question. My instinctive response is no, that the architecture of squares is 100% built around this binary uh, relationship. And you have to name those somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, But equally, I keep saying to the square dance callers who come to my workshops, like, you all know more than I do. Like if someone wants to organize a let's figure out if we can call squares positionally workshop, I am there for it. I would love to be part of that conversation and in like an audience almost kind of way because I know nothing. Um, But I just think every time you think through something from a new perspective, you learn something, even if it's like, wow, you're right, Louise, this is not going to work. Um. Like we would all learn so much about how squares are put together. Yeah. Um, so please someone organize that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And I'm, I'm so grateful just for this opportunity to, um, to hear from you and, and like start to learn a little bit more about what's happening with positional calling. Cause it's certainly on my radar, you know, for, for me personally, I've, I've definitely been in the, uh, you know, gender-free role terms, um, you, you know, realm like very solidly for many years. And yeah, it's so interesting to sort of trace the, the different points. Like when did I start to just not be able to look at a room full of new dancers and say, mm-hmm. choose who's doing the gents role and who's doing the, like, it just not being able to do it any <laughs> anymore uh in in that context and then and then yeah you know so appreciative of of the many different people who are talking about this and and giving us new new ideas to to try and play with and so you know for me positional positional calling is is like starting to come into the sphere of of things that I could 
um, play with and learn from. And um, yeah, I, one thing that's, that I'm still grappling with just as, as a total beginner thinking about these concepts is, you know, you're kind of describing in squares, like this, this whole challenge of like getting away from bi binary thinking, which we are all trying to do in many, many ways yeah. as well. But, you know, describing squares as, as sort of depending on, on a binary, like in some ways I, that could be argued for con contra, like having two pairs in a, in a minor set or sometimes when I think about as, as I have even, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have called it positional calling, but I am have in many situations tried to think, how can I describe this with without role terms, you know, we, exactly. you know, for all the reasons that we want to do that, you know, but I often do come down to like, like a right hand side and a left hand side or in a circle mixer, it's like the, uh, the inside person and the outside person, you know, and so to, to me, I'm like, isn't that still like a binary unit? And like, how do you how do you sort of expand out of that in, in, in the lens of positional calling? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely, like, any dance that has a couple at its core is gonna have a binary geometry. Um, which is partly why as I started to think about this, I was like, oh, if we stop focusing on that binary as the core dynamic mm -hmm. of the dance, it opens up other possibilities, right? And so whether that's, you have two partners instead of one. Um, and so we introduced a three facing three, which like I had always been using three facing three dances for things like teaching a room full of inexperienced dancers, how to do contra corners, because it's so much less confusing in a group of six than in a long line. Right. Yeah. But there's nothing inherently wrong with a binary, right? Like even from a critical theory kind of super academic perspective, the problem with the binary is the hierarchy. Yes. The, uh, the gents role because you're new kind yeah, of thinking or, or like the lead and follow only, thinking. Right. Yeah. That if you're a gent, you're a lead and you are the one who can initiate flourishes um, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of, all of this baggage that comes into the dance because we've imported the hierarchical part of this binary structure. Um, you know, I mean, I remember being an undergrad in some feminist lit class saying, being presented with a list of like, here are binaries. We can put all of them in a hierarchical relation and thinking like, well, only if you value that side of the list more than that one, right? <laughs> like as someone who consistently roots for the underdog, let me tell you about the positive power of losing. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so I think like releasing ourselves from the expectation that every binary has to have a good one and a bad one, mm -hmm. whatever yeah. that means, right. Um, is, uh, is quite, um, important and, and it's not the binary itself. that's a problem. Um, it's just, can we make that egalitarian? Can we make it something that everyone has access to? Uh, and I think, you know, while I fully understand the advice that you only pick one side and stick with it if you're a new dancer at a contra dance, I also think there is value to saying, pick one side, and then if you didn't love it, try the other side. 
Like you're new, you're going to be messing up all the time anyway. <laughs> um, there may be a side that feels better to you, you know, yeah. and that can be for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the third thing that I get asked all the time and that I say to people, um, although I have to say this happens much more in the English sort of side of things is that people say, when you take away gender, you take away the romance and setting aside the very obvious, like, yeah, only for you, not for me. Right. Like, um, like I, I think it's really important that we remind people that they, they bring something to this, right? Like you, if you want romance, you can bring that obviously with the consent of your partner. Um, but, but that is something that's in you, not in the call. Mm-hmm. And we all have so much freedom to bring whatever we want to the dance. Um, which is why dancing is powerful, yeah. right? Like some days I'm using it as escapism and other days I'm in the mood to just like partner with only new dancers all night. Um, and yeah, it's, it's impossible to know why people are showing up. Yeah. And so we have to take responsibility for bringing ourselves, I think. I love it. So I usually close with with three um, questions, uh, which are just sort of my my little survey of uh, a few things that that most callers have, you know, practices or thoughts around. So the first one is um, has to do with dance callers being also kind of collectors or or curators of of dance repertoire and needing to have a way to sort of file or, or keep our dances. So I'm curious what you do in terms of dance notation. Are you digital? Do you have cards or binders or what's your, what's your strategy? Yeah. So, so I started out with a word document when I was like brand new, uh, and quickly switched to a FileMaker database, uh, because, I had used it a lot at work and it's fully customizable and searchable and all the rest of it. So I had a FileMaker database for a while, um, which was the closest to ideal I think one could get in terms of me traveling a lot, portability, accessibility. Um, you could back it up in a bunch of places. Um, and then I can't, I can't really remember why to be honest, but I started handwriting cards and I realized that I love the experience of hand. I mean, I'm, you know, an, an artist and an art historian and I'm like, I love craft. And mm-hmm. so crafting my cards becomes this like really lovely thing. But also I remember the dances better. Like, you know, science tells us that if you handwrite things, you remember them. Um, and, and I was really like having an uptick in my calling and finding that physical uh, aid to my memory quite useful. Um, also developed this sort of arcane color coded, and it's not color coded. I feel like we have seen examples of color coding on this podcast that I have two colors, black and blue, um, but they mean something to me. Um, and and that was not as easy to do online and um, sort of finicky. Whereas when I'm writing out a card, I can just switch pens very, very fluidly. And um, so, so I have paper cards. Uh, I mean, I'm a pretty avid collector. I try every dance I call to call at least one dance I haven't called before. Um, and 
yeah, it's just, you know, it's a way to stay kind of current and, um, interesting. And especially because I've become interested in these like sort of more, um, egalitarian choreographies, my dance box is changing. People are writing really interesting new dances now. Um, and, uh, yeah. So trying, yeah, trying to keep on top of it all anyway. So yeah, mostly paper. I'm trying to figure out how to transition more effectively to kind of hybrid model, but I think it'll basically be just a, yeah, folder full of photos of my car. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) which is not not great but could be worse well just another thing yeah another thing to do in in hybrid these days like we've all learned that (laughs) and I do I have a digital list of all my programs and I have to say the callers box has like revolutionized Uh my whole attitude towards this um I once got called in to do a gig at the last minute and the call the callers box, sorry, is a is an online database. Pages database. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Um and I had my program on my phone, but none of my cards. Uh I mean it wasn't even it was just an old it was a program where the dance got canceled. So I'm like, oh, you need me to call something tonight? Huh. I have a program right here. Um, so I literally like went to a stationer's, bought cards, bought a file folder thingy. And was like writing the cards out again from the caller's box database uh, on the way to the gig. It was slightly crazy, but um, yeah. So, so yeah, tools. Yes. Yeah. There's there's so many. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Um, When you're going to a gig, do you have any pre or post dance kind of rituals that you have to kind of prepare or, or wind down at the end of the night? I don't really. Um, no, I feel like I'm actually more real ritualistic when I'm going as a dancer. Oh, huh. Um, what's that look like? Well, this is gonna, this is gonna like, this is like the most alienating answer I could ever give in a public forum, but I really prefer going to dances by myself. Um, so like people offer you carpools and you're like, no, I'll take the train. I mean, I never do. Right. I always say, yes, I'd love to go with you instead. Um, but I really love going to a dance and like just getting a sandwich or something really easy to eat and kind of having half an hour to myself before I go into this like intensely social space. So yeah. Whereas I feel like as a caller, I mean, you, you can't have time to yourself ahead of time really because you're there doing sound check and what have you but that has its own kind of ritual character right like you for me I don't need to build in rituals when the sound check is a ritual of its own and yeah so it's interesting I hadn't thought about it before um but yeah and then I have to say uh Jane and Andrew who run the London Barn Dance have a very lovely wind down tradition of like wine and cheese that I think every caller should have. I mean, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. And I totally get the, uh, I, I also feel pretty introverted, uh, in general and, and often have the tug of war between carpooling versus, you know, for me, it's more on the other end of things. Like there's part of me that wants to know that I can, if I'm ready to go home, <laughs> that yes. I can go home, <laughs> which, you know, where, where I live, that, that is usually requires a car. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a balancing act, all of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have to say one of the best things about moving here is that I left my car uh, the in the States oh. and it can be a real hassle. You know, like the the last train back to Winchester is before London Barn Dance ends. So I rely on the kindness of friends frequently. But uh, yeah, it's also an amazing thing not to drive anymore. Mm-hmm. But my girlfriend's a musician and so she has a car and that also is a bit handy. Nice. Cannot actually do gigs realistically. I'm sure. Um, yeah. Especially if you're bringing any kind of equipment without a car. Yeah. But as a caller, we're lucky because, like, usually I'm only carrying my mic and my cards. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Traveling light. No, I, anytime I'm like traveling with a band or at an away gig, I just don't feel have so much, <laughs> so much, uh, uh, love and admiration for the musicians who just had so much more involved for them to show up and, and do what they do. So, yes. yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, <laughs> and then, I mean, we've already talked about this a little bit, but I have sort of been tracking in these interviews, um, whether people kind of identify as more of an introvert or an, or an extrovert. Cause I'm kind of interested in just in, in how that plays out for for people who who have chosen to become callers because it's you know it it does require being in yeah in the spotlight being in groups of people so um and you've kind of touched on this a little bit but it sounds like you're you're introverted and and but find yeah. some comfort in kind of having a defined role I think as a caller. yeah and I um it's funny because I think, yes, definitely, right? There is a way in which calling gives me a sense of purpose in a in a space, but I would say also like dancing does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, I love so many things about folk dance compared to other kinds of dancing, but um, I love that you can just know that you will dance all night if you want to. Um, which isn't true at a swing dance. I used to go to swing dance events all the time and sit out for three quarters of it um, because I was way too shy to ask people. Um, and uh, and if people don't recognize you, they won't ask you because they don't want to dance with someone who might not be good. Like there's such snobbery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, obviously also exists in the contra dance community, but not nearly as much. And there's, it's not universal in the way that I often experienced it as being in swing communities. Um, but I think that a, a part of my introvertedness is a real horror of making other people uncomfortable. And so there's that moment of like, when I realized that bringing my book to a dance and reading through the break was actually sending this message of like, I have no interest in any of you and like how rude it was perceived as being. Whereas I was just like, you know, incredibly naively thinking like, well, I don't know anyone here and they don't know me. Why would they want to talk to me? And it's like, (laughs) um, so I think also, yeah, it sort of saves you from that accidental faux pas that I, um, I apparently live in horror of, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is a very introverted thing. Um, Yeah. But for me, it really, like, it's the classic, like, are you, if when you're with people, 
It's not yes. that I don't like being with people, right? It's just that I get exhausted. It takes energy. And yeah. So it is that thing of like, and I'm going to come home from this really fun weekend and I'm going to sleep for two days straight and like not talk to anyone and not go outside. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that events have started to have things like quiet rooms. I adore that. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. This yeah. is so. It's yeah, so that idea important. of like, yeah, how can we make this accessible to everybody? I love it. Well, Louise, I'm so happy to get to know you a little bit more. Like what, before we started, we were remembering maybe being at the, the first Elixir dance weekend. Um, and we've crossed paths a little bit in, in other ways. But um, I hope that I get to be on the dance floor when you're calling sometime, hopefully in the UK. I would like I would like to make that happen. <laughs> I would for love myself. that to happen. <laughs> exactly. I think um, it's, it's one of the best things about moving here is I can be like, if you need a guest room, haha, uh, good it's to here know. For you. <laughs> for anybody. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I think that you should have someone interview you for this at some point. <laughs> You're not the only person that, uh, that has said that. And that I might be revealing some of my introvert tendencies, <laughs> uh, perhaps preferring to be on this side of things, but yeah, it is, uh, yeah, yeah, it would, I've been thinking about that because yeah, I've got my own stories too. Um, but I, I just love this opportunity to talk with, with, fellow callers and, um, and that zoom is allowing us to connect, uh, and allowing me to connect with folks all, all over the place. So thanks for helping us, you know, visit some of your world and, um, enjoy, enjoy the rest of your day. And, uh, yeah, thanks for dropping by. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to Louise for talking with me. Check out the show notes at podcasts.cdss.org to learn more, and also to find a link to Louise's new book, Dancing the Whole Dance, Positional Calling for Contra. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams and me, Mary Wesley. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzachowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit podcasts.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing and happy May! The views expressed in this podcast are of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of CDSS.